Welcome back, everyone, to UConn 360, uh, the world's longest-running, most trusted podcast that covers all aspects of life at the University of Connecticut. You are listening to our eighth episode. Eight! We've kept this thing going for four months. It's an even number. It's pretty good. Lucky eight. Uh, If you like what you hear, we uh, ask that you download, subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends. Um, as always, we want to thank Nancy Stula and the folks at the Benton Museum of Art, where this podcast is coming to you from. And my name is Tom Breen. I am your facilitator of sorts. Joining me as always, Julie Bartuka. Hello. And Ken Bess. Good afternoon. It's a beautiful spring day here on the Stores campus, and we have a lot of interesting things to bring you. And why don't we start right off with a Husky headline. I'm going to start because this is big news, legitimately big news. doesn't happen uh, often in the life of university, but it's a normal thing to happen. Uh, this week, as we record this, President Susan Herbst announced that she will be stepping down um, next year at the end of, I guess, June of 2019. Uh, that will uh, mean that she'll have been president of UConn for eight years. Um, and... I think it's fair to say that she's probably been the most uh, transformative president since Homer Babbage. Um, A lot of big things have happened at the university in the last eight years. Um, We opened a brand new campus in the capital city. We have student housing in Stanford where we never had student housing before. Huge. Um, We added something like 500 new tenure track faculty members uh, in the last seven years at this point. there's been construction all over campus. <laughs> Which we're very familiar with, Which but it's good. It's all good. It is good construction. Uh, renovations to older facilities, brand new facilities, um, brand new dorms, I guess residence halls. Um, so a lot of exciting things have happened uh, at UConn, and they've been, uh, at times, challenging years. Uh, and I think President Herbst has done a great job of steering the ship through sometimes turbulent waters uh, and has done a really good job of solidifying UConn's uh, presence in the uh, elite public universities of our country. We'll be talking more about President Herbst over the next year. Hopefully, we'll be talking to President Herbst. That would be great. Um, but that's the big news, certainly from UConn land. Uh, everyone's going to wish her well, I know. And we still have a year, so it's not like it's happening tomorrow. Yeah, it'll be a nice transition period. There'll be a nice transition period. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's my big news. Ken, what, uh, what's happening in your world? UConn today had a story by our friend, Colin Poitras, who uh, works in the office with us. Uh, Big news. Uh, The School of Pharmacy uh, researchers are leading a national effort to improve pharmaceutical manufacturing. Uh, They received a $3.3 million grant from the Food and Drug Administration, and it's the first grant awarded under the 21st Century Cures Act, which Congress approved uh, in 2016 to spur innovation in drug manufacturing and development. Uh, our pharmaceutical researchers, uh, Diane Burgess and uh, Bodhi uh, Chahuri, are adapting the techniques of continuous manufacturing for the production of complex drugs. Uh, this kind of work has been done uh, for a long time in electronics, chemical, and automobile manufacturing, but historically, drug manufacturing is batch processing, which is why occasionally you hear news about uh, a callback or a, or a, a dumping of a bad batch right. of, of medication. Um, uh, the process uh, is stop and start and stepping, and so that has the risk of contamination because of open transfer materials. Um, but this will help also to speed the delivery of drugs through the approval process to patients. Uh, and 
what people may not know is that the School of Pharmacy here is known for the development of innovative technologies for manufacturing drugs, uh, and that helps keep pace with all the new innovations that are going on technologically. Very exciting. Very nice. And shout out to Colin Poitras, a good guy despite being a Boston Bruins fan. Julie! <laughs> Speaking of sports, I have some athletics news. A record seven UConn athletics teams have received a public recognition award from the NCAA for posting academic progress rate scores in the top 10% nationally for their individual sports. The UConn men's basketball, women's cross country, field hockey, men's golf, men's hockey, men's tennis, and women's tennis teams were honored for their outstanding academic performance over the four years from 2013 and 14 to 2016 and 17. Uh, some interesting stats about our teams and their APR honors. The men's golf team has been honored all 13 years that the APR program has existed. The honor is the second in a row for the men's basketball team and the seventh in a row for the field hockey team, which has won three national championships during the four-year period that wow. was just measured. Very impressive. And the women's tennis program has been honored ten consecutive times, while the men's tennis program was recognized for the fourth time, oh, excuse me, fourth, fifth time and fourth in a row. So we just want to congratulate all our outstanding student-athletes for always being students first and achieving such great success on the field as well. That is fantastic. That's even more important given the travel schedule that they now have. Yeah. I don't know so how they, they balance it. it. It's uh, insane. Well, they take the books on the planes. <laughs> so uh, I don't really have a segue to our next segment, but I do want to talk about it's a social problem. A lot of people have heard about it. That problem is fake news. You've heard about it? <laughs> how have you heard about it? Like on Twitter from the president? On Twitter.com. Uh, here at the University of Connecticut, we have something called the Science Salon. And how does that relate to fake news? Julie's going to tell us. Yes, so we've mentioned the Science Salon quite a few times here in our promos and some of our headlines, and I thought it would be fun to bring you guys inside a recent Science Salon event. So this is a series we started, I believe, in 2015, and we would like to bring experts on various hot topics in science to the public for engaging discussions where you could go into the bar and have some cocktails and then sit down and ask a scientist, excuse me, a question. Um, so we had, we've had them on everything from marijuana to 3D printing to seaweed, was a recent one. On May 10th, three UConn professors shipped up to Boston for a special event that collaborated with the Boston Alumni Network on fake news. Journalism professors Mike Stanton, who won a Pulitzer Prize when he was at the Providence Journal, Marie Shanahan, a longtime digital journalist who has worked at the Hartford Current, and communication department head Ken Lachlan, who is an expert in social media during emergencies, discuss what fake news means for our society and how we can combat it. My name is Kim Krieger. I'm your host. And tonight we are going to be talking about fake news. The topic is huge. Um, I mean, it really is. It really is. The amount of information that you're expected to comprehend as an educated person or as a citizen today is, is enormous. It's difficult to know where to begin. Are you going to pay attention to your local state budget and it's going to fund your schools? If you pay attention to that, can you also pay attention to the relationship between the Russian president and our president and who's funding them? But more broadly than what you have to pay attention to is also the state of our public discourse. And right now, it's not so great. I mean, two people standing screaming insults at their political opponent does not really make a great discourse. UConn Associate Professor of Journalism Marie Shanahan has been following this discourse in the digital space since the early days of the internet. She was a reporter at the Hartford Current and became an online producer when they launched their website in the late 90s. And the thing that I study at UConn is online comments. 
So if any of you have any relationship to the news online or Facebook or Twitter, you know that conversations, there's a digital discourse that goes on all the time around news. And news traditionally has always been the thing that starts conversations. You read the news and then you go talk about it with someone. If it's a, if it's a story that has gotten under your skin, that outrages you, that made you cry, then you're more likely to share it. Um, you're more likely to tell somebody else about it. So think about how we now have these vehicles uh, available to us in our phones all the time where we can talk about how we're feeling about the thing that we just heard about. Where in the old days, I'd pick up the Harford Current and the news would just be there, not framed by anyone else, but just sort of coming to me. So a lot of people, and a lot of people use both Google and especially social media to get their news, that if you're going through that particular filter, the friend, the influencer, and you tend to trust your friends more than you trust other people. Some you know, random journalist, like you don't know Mike Stanton yet, so how do you know that you can trust him? So if you're getting your news from your friends and it's framed a certain way, your understanding and your perception of that news is already a little bit changed even before you read it. And I can tell you how many comments, okay, I've read a, I read a lot of online comments. It's not fun, people. It's not fun at all. But that you can tell, especially on Facebook, that the people who are leaving the comments, they didn't even read the story. They read the headline, they read the little blurb thing underneath, and then they just went off. I'm very interested in finding out how, what is the responsibility of me as a journalist or me as a news organization in hosting a better conversation. Ken Lachlan, head of UConn's communication department, researches what happens on social media during emergencies like Hurricane Sandy. In these situations, fake news can be straight up dangerous. I was sitting in my warm, dry apartment in Brighton, Massachusetts, watching Hurricane Sandy roll in, wondering if everybody who was going to be affected by it had the same information that I had at the time, the answer obviously being no. And I did a number of content studies based on simple hashtag terms that looked at what information one can retrieve when they go out there and conduct certain like search patterns uh, or search uh, techniques in Twitter and Facebook and other forms of social media, what comes back to you when you have a certain knowledge base that you use to retrieve information and how much of that is factual, how much of it is informational, how much of it is affect, how much of it is about emotion, uh, and how much of it is just junk, stuff you can't use. And over the course of these studies, what I found is that when you have a long lead time up to an event, at the beginning, you have plenty of actionable information if you're using very, very simple search terms, right? If I type hashtag Sandy in a Twitter, okay, I'm getting information back. And then as the crisis begins to unfold, here comes the fake news. Here comes doctored photographs of fish swimming down Fifth Avenue. Here comes the Statue of Liberty being taken over by a tidal wave. Here comes information about a power outage in lower Manhattan that isn't actually happening. And these things start to creep into the dialogue as it unfolds. And also, here comes all the, all the affective outpouring. Here comes, oh my god, we're all going to die. And that starts taking up all of the Twitter feed. Because the great thing about social media is that everyone has a voice. And the terrible thing about social media is that everyone has a voice. Okay, So now, being able to obtain this information and make good decisions becomes very, very difficult as you're wading through this morass of dis disinformation and affective outpouring from the people that are in the way. At the very end, right before these crises hit, and I've replicated this several times, now comes the spam. Right Now comes for the latest on Sandy, click here, you click on the link and it's diet pills. Okay? So we have this gradual de devolution of the quality of the information and right at the moment at which you need it most, it's not there. Journalism professor Mike Stanton talked about the term fake news itself and what it means for journalists like the ones he's teaching at UConn. As a longtime journalist, I don't like the term fake news because it's a fabrication and journalists steal in facts. It's a cheap label that has, has morphed very quickly 
uh, from made-up stories to a way to attack journalists uh, who call truth to power. Um, in record time, a phrase that's been used to define you know, made-up stories on the internet has morphed into this cliche and an angry political slur, a political weapon, if you will, to deflect attention from negative but legitimate and important journalism. This may not surprise you, but yesterday, um, our president tweeted uh, about fake news. Somebody recently counted up the number of tweets he's had with that phrase, fake news, and it's close to 200. But this time he said the fake news, capitalized fake news, is working overtime. Just reported that despite the tremendous success we've had with the economy and all things else, 91%, not 90, but 91% of the network news about me is negative, and in parentheses he says fake. Um, <laughs> here's the problem. Negative does not equal fake. And I'll use a sports analogy because I'm a passionate Red Sox fan. When I talk about the Yankees, I say the Yankees suck. It's not because they really suck. They're good, but I hate them. And the problem with fake news, it's about hatred. It's about, um, it used to be the facts help us form our opinions. Now our opinions help us form our facts. The audience-led discussion ran the gamut, including the impact of economics on fake news. Journalism companies and their, their businesses need to kind of survive to make money. Mm -hmm. So with the transition of print media onto the internet, which is free, you know, you need to, the journalists need to have the resources and the money to be able to kind of investigate these stories. So you kind of speak a little bit about, again, the role of economics in this, hmm. in this transition to, uh, to online. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, because as the internet has risen, with all these unreliable sources out there, the traditional media that this gentleman alluded to has declined, has cut back, has retrenched. And with the growth of cable news, you now have 24-7 uh, that needs to be filled, and it's actually cheaper to pay a couple of talking heads to shout at each other their opinions than to staff a bureau in Jerusalem to put people out in the field talking to the people at the ground level of what's really happening. And that's a real problem. It's a problem, you know, a lot of newspapers have cut back their foreign coverage at a time when the world is shrinking and their important things happen. Many fewer reporters are in state houses around the country. Local news has really taken a hit um, to the point that um, there aren't eyes or isn't accountability, and that is a problem. And people don't want to pay for it. The conversation included helpful advice on how readers can vet stories for themselves. Perhaps journalists need to do a little more like that, show you exactly where I got all my information from. And what I like about online journalism, and that's sort of like my thing, is that you can use a hyperlink to show the audience exactly where you got your information from. And then if you, if you want to vet me, then you can. You can say, I see where you got it from, and I don't think that's a reliable source. So there's also sort of digging in. And when I teach my students, as, as journalists, they have to go out and find sources, and we can use the internet now. Whenever I go to a website, the first thing that I do, when I find the thing that I'm interested in, I want to know, first of all, how old is this story? Is there a date on this page? Is there a byline on this page? Is there an about page for this website? Is there a contact us page? And if, there's, if any one of those things are missing, I immediately consider all of that suspect. We all just need to be extremely skeptical online. I mean, what's the thing that they all say in journalism? Like, your mother says you love you. Check you got to check it out. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that technology, what the internet has allowed us to do is it allows everybody to speak. And the internet is what we all are. So we can be wonderful and kind and generous. And we can be vengeful and awful and big fat liars. The internet is all of that except amplified and searchable. So I take, take everything with a grain of salt. Back in the old days, Walter Cronkite would give you the news and you would take it 
and there's no talking back. He's not going <laughs> to listen. You can yell at your TV like my dad does, but no one's going to talk back to you. But now we all have the ability to have this back and forth. So if, if you see something and you, and you just don't trust it, what is the thing that you're calling into question? Then ask them. Let them know. And a lot of times the news organization is going to, they will usually engage with you and let you know. Because right now I think that the news media in particular is has a crisis of trust. There's so much more where this came from. And if you're interested in hearing the whole discussion, you can visit our website, yukon.edu slash yukon360-podcast to hear the recording. You can visit sciencesalon.yukon.edu for up-to-date information and photos of past salons. From the world of fake news, we turn to the world of the stage. UConn uh, is actually very fortunate to have a, a very well-known name in stage and screen coming to uh, direct and star in some theater this summer, and Ken is going to tell us all about that. Ken. Last year, Terrence Mann became the artistic director of the Nutmeg Summer Theater Program of the Connecticut Repertory Theater, uh, which is here at UConn. It's the, the professional regional theater for this part of Connecticut, and it is based here at UConn. Um, Terrence Mann has been here a number of times as an actor and as a director, uh, but he is best known for his work on Broadway. Uh, he was in three of the top ten longest-running shows, Cats, Les Miserables, I think that's how it's pronounced, Les or Les Mis, as they say, and Beauty and the Beast, where <gasps> Julie saw him. Beauty and the Beast. He's been in 19 stage productions, 22 films, and on television, uh, he is the real deal. Uh, most importantly, when he is not acting, he's a distinguished professor in musical theater at Western Carolina University in North Carolina. So he works with students all the time, which is a very important part of the CRT experience uh, for our students in the Department of Dramatic Arts. This year, the Su Nutmeg Summer Theater is all musicals. It begins on June 7th with Disaster, which is a spoof of disaster films. <laughs> it was on Broadway. Uh, and what's important about this show is that Seth Radetzky, uh, who's the host of Seth Speaks on Sirius XM, he wrote the play. He's going to reprise his role uh, from Broadway here in Connecticut. Uh, the soundtrack is 1970s songs from Elton John and Linda Ronstadt, The Bay City Rollers, and <laughs> Donna Summer. Wow. Uh, and then the next show is Sweeney Todd. I got my tickets already. Terry is going to be starring, and that begins June 21st, and he will direct Jesus Christ Superstar, the first, or one of the first rock operas turned into a musical production in early July. Uh, uh, he and I have talked a number of times since he's been here, and we had a really good talk uh, recently. What did you learn last year when you were here in the first full year of doing that job? I think I learned that uh, it's okay to say I don't know. And I also learned to rely on the very smart people that I have around me and to really listen to them. I think that was the biggest thing. It was really listening and sort of keeping my ear to the ground and taking the temperature of, of the environments, not only of the cast, and, uh, but of the tech folks and, and of the company manager folks and the people in the, in the administration. You know, just just becoming more aware of that, you know, having my radar really start to encompass all of that because... If everybody's happy and everybody's working on the same page and for the same reason and trying to get to the same sense of excellence in terms of putting on shows and we're doing the right thing, and, you know, that starts at the top, trying to make a, a healthy place to, to do all of this and for the right reason, which is we want to put on some good theater. 
one of the things that I remember we had discussed, uh, I think it was the very first time we talked, which is probably about four years ago now, I think. Yeah. Um, why you continue to enjoy coming back to, to this place in stores in the Connecticut Repertory Theater, uh-huh. um, doing summer stock. Uh, it's a lot of work, a <laughs> short period of time, as, yeah. as, as we've talked about before. But it's what you do, I think. It well. It is, yeah, Ken. It is. It's. It is what I do. It's like a gym rat, you know. Once a gym rat, always a gym rat. If you want, if you want to play basketball, then you're going to play basketball, whether you're in the pros or whether you're out on some asphalt court, you know, on on the side of the road. You know, you you love the game. I, I love the game of theater and all its aspects. And I, I think back in the. 80s and the 90s when I was doing Broadway shows. And you, you got to remember, I had no expectation of ever being on Broadway or doing Broadway shows. Yeah, you said you wanted to be a rock and roll star. I wanted to be a rock and roll star or a classical actor, you know, like the third spear chucker from the left at the public theater in Coriolanus, you know. All of that success of being in all those Broadway shows came out of nowhere for me um, because I had whatever, whatever capabilities I had. But when I had some downtime... I'm going, well, well, what happens now? Uh, so my friends from North Carolina say, hey, come down and direct this show. Come down and be in this show. I go, of course. So you just want to live in that world of yes and going, I'll go do it there. I'll go do it there. You know, if you sit around waiting for the next Broadway show or the next movie or the next TV show, you're going to be a very sad and lonely person ultimately because unless you're a big A-lister on that short, short, very short list, that's not the way the world is. People at the bottom have it easy. Well, they don't have it easy, but they have it simpler. And people at the top have it easy and simple. It's all of us in between. Bill Smitrovich is a veteran actor on television and on Broadway. Uh, We were in school together. And when I spoke to him for an interview many years later, he always would say that um, he just looks for the next job. (laughs) Even though he was greatly successful, it's the same thing that he was just saying. Okay, you got to go. You were thinking about the next job. Yeah, Bill and I played in the uh, the Broadway softball league back in the eighties. I guess it was. I remember we played on the same team. I think we played for he played. We played for Les Mis. I think once mm-hmm. he did. The, the journeyman actors. We're all journeyman actors, I and mean, you're just really looking for the next job. You really are. Which brings us to another uh, point about the same kind of subject that this was. Year before, when you were directing and starring in consecutive shows, yeah, and you said you were really worn down, and you just went to talk to Vince uh, about it, and of course, Vince, being Vince, uh, we're talking about Vince Cardinal, yeah. the uh, previous uh, artistic director and head of the dramatic arts department, he said, "Well, what do you want me to do? Stop, cancel the show? You want to go to the hospital?" Yeah, um, exactly. You're doing the same thing again this summer. You're, you're, you're in Sweeney Todd, and then you're going to direct Jesus Christ Superstar. I think I just. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> what did you do? I think I've just uh, um, been a perfect example of the definition of insanity. You know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. I, I, I don't know why I'm doing it. Of course, I know why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I did do it before and I survived it. <laughs> and it was and it was like a little bit like you know hitting myself on top of the head with a hammer because when I stopped it felt so good, but there was a, no more sense of relief and 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 having accomplished something at whatever level that might be than having done that. This time around, doing it, I'm a little more prepared. I know what to expect. 
and I've done Sweeney Todd before, and I'm out ahead of it enough so that I'm rehearsing it, and I'm, like I said, your very first question, I've got all these amazing people around me to, um, to you know, fill in all the blanks and take up the slack and, and know what to do when I don't. You have just finished, or recently, in the last couple of months, I guess, the uh, Jerry Springer, the opera. Yeah. I was re- recalling that you said your one of your favorite or most favorite role was uh, in Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah. where you had the, the lead, uh, Dr. Frank and Frank, Frank and Frutter. Yeah. And then I, in doing my research, Jerry Springer was the narrator in that show. Yes. And now you're in, you were you played him then Correct. just recently. Yes. Uh, how was that? <laughs> that was amazing, because I remember when we were doing Rocky Horror together. He came in for the week to play the narrator in it, and they were having guest celebrities come in every week. You know, Penn and Teller came in. DeCavett was there. He was the original. And I remember him coming in. He was a really nice guy, really affable, really self-effacing, smart guy. You know, a lawyer was mayor of Cincinnati. And he said, hey, you know, I'm gonna, there's an opera being written about me. I went, what? He said, yeah, in London, there's this opera. I said, what's it called? He went, Jerry Springer, the opera. I said, well, what the hell is that all about? He said, I don't know. I'm going to go see it. Knowing him what little, for what little time I did know him was that he's a really sincere guy. And he doesn't um, condescend to anybody. And on his show, he never, never curses. You know, he's always trying to just listen to what they're saying, you know. Is it exploitive? Probably. Is it like that reality television thing, you know, like waiting for the car crash to happen? Probably. But he's also giving everybody their 15 minutes of fame, and people want that. And so you can say he's he's pandering to one side of us that is not very pretty, but he's also giving all these other people a platform to come up and talk about what they want to talk about and about their feelings, and that makes a difference to them. You've got three shows this summer. You're directing the final one is... Jesus Christ Superstar, which just had this huge television moment mm-hmm. around these was I guess it was Easter Sunday or around that around that time. Mm-hmm. It's a show that people know very well. When you're looking at it from the perspective of the summer, uh, how do you uh, are you approaching it with the requirements of, of summer theater and the uh, the familiarity that people have with this production? Well, we all know the story. And we all know how it ends. And it's an iconic piece of musical theater, contemporary musical theater, rock music. So, uh, you know, I've got these amazing designers, and we just have these conversations. And it's like, it's not like you're, you know, you're not trying to uh, reinvent the wheel here. You're just trying to tell the story as clearly as possible. And we're really, and you're really trying to tell it from one perspective only. Some people have done it a bunch of different ways. It's been done all kinds of different ways with the same results, you know, that it's moving, it's powerful. Um, I think rock music and that kind of epic storytelling have a lot in common, you know, because it's big emotions, big feelings, and big outcomes, you know, and that's what rock does, and that's what the epic story of the Bible can do as well, like Shakespeare does. So... I just, I've never done it, and I've been dying to do it for a while. So is Christopher Dumbois, who's a choreographer. So our big job is to see it through somebody's eyes as specifically as possible, which is Judas's eyes. See the whole thing through Judas's point of view, because everybody else is kind of following Jesus, 
Jesus knows what the outcome is. Judas is the only one going, I don't want you to die, man, because if you could hang around, we could really make some changes going on. So he's the conflicted one. He's the one who changes. He's the one who, for the wrong reasons, or for the right reasons, does the wrong thing. So, you know, we're just trying to plumb the depth of that theatrically. What's next uh, following the summer when you uh, head back to wherever you're heading back to these days? Well, we go back down to Western Carolina University where I teach, and that's where uh, my wife, Charlotte D'Amboise, and I do our, our summer musical theater intensive, triple arts, our triple arts musical theater intensive. We go down there, we got um, about 50 young students, uh, high school students and college students, and we, for three weeks we do a big musical theater intensive and do about 16, 17 big production numbers. We have a moving story element we've added to it for choreographers. So we do that till the August 4th. Then we go out to, uh, to Seattle to pick up my, one of my daughters who's at the Pacific Northwest Ballet. And then we're going to go to the San Juan Islands out there for a vacation. And after that, I don't know, I'm looking for a job. Well, uh, you're always welcome back here, so thanks for stopping by. Thanks, man. Uh, that was a great conversation, Ken. Uh, thanks for doing that. Uh, Terry's a great guy. He's very laid back, as you can as you can tell. Um, he's just uh, working his butt off, as he said in the in the piece. Uh, this is what he does. Ken. This is what he does. He's a he's a theater rat, just as guys are gym rats, as you kind of reference. Awesome. Well, now it's time once again to visit. Uh, one of our favorite places, not on any map. Do we have a name? We do. No. It's it's Tom's History Corner. Now that name change is pending. We're working on it. We've got Work we've in progress. we've submitted the paperwork mm-hmm. to the higher ups it's in on the, a desk in the Yukon 360 C suite. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I think Susan Herbst is the most transformative president Yukon since Homer Babbage. So I thought, why not talk a little bit about Homer Babbage, who maybe some students and younger alums might only recognize from the library. The library, which bears his name. Uh, so who was Homer Babbage? Uh, he was Yukon's eighth president. He served from 1962 to 1972, and he came here with a slightly unorthodox background. He was never actually a faculty member anywhere. He got his uh, bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. from Yale, which I understand well, is a well-known school. Is it? Of some, some sort. And then he went, uh, he went to work in the Eisenhower administration in um, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Before there was a separate Department of Education, it was lumped in into one. And by the end of the Eisenhower administration, he was the second highest ranking federal official in higher education. I did not know that. Outgoing president was Albert Jorgensen, whose name adorns another famous building on campus. And he had been president uh, since 1935. And Jorgensen is, without question, the most important single president in UConn's history. What year did Babbage come? 62. That is a very long time. 27 years. Wow. And Jorgensen presided over the growth of UConn from a very small school with 800 students to a university with 10,000 students. But by 1962, it was time to move on. Sounds like he was pretty transformative. <laughs> he was the most in UConn's history, for sure. Um, but he had kind of had a bad relationship at that point with the trustees and with the faculty and the students, and there really aren't that many other people involved in the university. Um, so people were very excited to have kind of a, a young, up-and-coming uh, outsider with, with new ideas. And, uh, and boy, did he have new ideas. Here's just a short list of the things accomplished during Homer Babbage's 10 years he doubled the size of the faculty and also doubled their pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he massively expanded the library collection. Uh, when he arrived, the library was in the Wilbur, Wilbur Cross building, mm-hmm. which is visible from the window where it we're recording this. Beautiful. And 
we had about 400,000 volumes in the library. The average for a state university at the time was around 900,000. Wow. And when he left, there were more than a million. Now we have 1.3 million because that's in all the academic or <laughs> academic admissions books I do. That's right. He, uh, he created the honors program. Uh, Thank you. Opened Homer. the Avery Point campus. Awesome. He started the Yukon Foundation because before then, Yukon had no way to raise money from private donors, <laughs> which was a mistake. Oh, do you like the Benton Museum of Art where we're recording? I do. It became a museum of art because of him. When this building was built originally as the only dining hall on campus, and it was called the Beanery. You should come and get your beans. Which I imagine is why we have the Beanery downstairs Exactly. Now. That heritage is carried on in the coffee shop. Uh, but when Homer Babbage arrived, it was being used uh, as storage space. Wow. And this he, gorgeous building was yes. being used for storage. And he saw this gorgeous building with its high ceilings, and he said this would be a great place for an art gallery. And lo and behold, it came to pass. Very cool. So he was a transformative uh, president. And when you read accounts of his early years, it's like getting a glimpse in like a never, never land where everybody was happy and things were harmonious. <laughs> That's definitely never, never. <laughs> he, would ha- he and his wife would have an Easter egg hunt on the front lawn for the children of university employees every year that would feature a Ferris wheel and a 10 foot tall paper mache bunny. Oh my gosh. Um, Can we hire him as our <laughs> During a power outage at South Campus, the old South Campus, a 15 hour power outage, students were getting restless. So he hired a band from off campus and started a dance party. For the students. Wow. That is the, that is the stuff of leadership. That's when, incredible. When you know it's time That's to throw it. That's really a, cool. That is a way. I, um, sounds like a lovable guy. This era of good feeling lasted just about five years. Oh, that uh, one happened. The Vietnam War happened. Mm, Late 60s it. turbulence came to campus. At UConn, the spark was uh, protests against Dow Chemical recruiting on campus. Dow Chemical, makers of napalm, which was a controversial product. <laughs> Why? Um, so students began protesting uh, Dow chemical manufacturers in 1967, but it really came to a head in the fall of 68. Uh, students occupied Gully Hall, uh, and they issued mimeographed bulletins that said things like, the czar's winter palace has been liberated. What will the czar do now? <laughs> Homer was the czar. There was a documentary film made about that yes. that was uh, played at the Dodd Center as part of a uh, protest themed uh, exhibition that was put together on the, in the alternative press collection. Yep. And there's some in, inside the executive office conversations with, with him saying, this is not what I am here for. Mm. Yes. It's a fast, it's called diary of a student revolution. It's really fascinating. It was made for PBS. Uh, and anyway, as this went on, there was a protest against the Olin Matthias and company who were meeting with students, uh, recruiting them to come work for them at uh, one of the Brown houses on Gilbert road because they kept moving the recruiters around because students would protest. So students got wind of this and showed up, and things got out of hand when the protesters tackled a student who was trying to get inside for an interview. UConn didn't have a police department, and it had security guards uh, who just had long clubs, and they just started clubbing everybody. The protesters started throwing bricks. Oh, my gosh. And uh, Babbage had to call in the state police. There were 100 state troopers uh, at the Mansfield Training School waiting for the call. And in that movie that Ken mentioned, uh, uh, Babbage says that was the saddest day of his life when he had to do that. One of Homer Babbage's big, big uh, issues was tuition. There was no tuition at UConn at the time, which was common for public universities. And lawmakers at the end of the 60s No started, tuition? No tuition. If you were a state resident, you came here, no tuition. This C- made me really angry. C- CCNY in New York <laughs> went uh, up until sometime, I think, in the 80s or 90s yeah. before, that, before they started charging yeah. tuition. I did not know this was part of our history. There, was call, there were calls to impose tuition for the first time. Babbage opposed them. 
saying, uh, raising the financial threshold of college attendance would serve to impede the purpose of public education, namely to encourage the individual, regardless of the accidents of birth and economic circumstances, to develop their talents to the fullest. Babbage had a good relationship with the governor, John Dempsey, in the 60s, but a new governor was elected at the end of the decade, Thomas Meskell, who did not like UConn. (laughs) He was very antagonistic towards UConn, and he demanded that faculty salaries be cut and that uh, efforts be made to curb student demonstrations, and he wanted tuition. And eventually he got tuition, imposing tuition. Uh, So shortly after that, Homer tendered his letter of resignation. Well, that's going to do it uh, for us this week. Uh, Thank you for listening, as always. And if you like what you heard... Feel free to subscribe. You can we're on all <laughs> kinds of new podcast platforms. <laughs> you didn't talk to any of us. I, I'm going to. Okay. Wow. I thought wow. that came after. No, no, it comes before. Okay. We're on uh, Stitcher now. We're on uh, Overcast. I don't know what that is. We're <laughs> these are podcast apps. <laughs> What's podcast? <laughs> uh, we're still not on Spotify. We're not on Spotify. Like we're like, I don't know. Like we're at a velvet rope, and Spotify is not letting us pass. Um. But anyway, there's lots of ways to listen to us. So go ahead and, and subscribe and rate and tell your friends about us. Julie. Yeah. <laughs> how can people <laughs> find you? And is there anything they should know? At Julie Bartuka on Twitter and at Yukon Podcast. Ken, what about you? Mondays from 4.30 now to 7. We extended an extra Ooh, hour. Ooh. An hour more of Ken Best on the right. At 91.7 WHUS. Or whus.org streaming online just before the between the doppelgangers and the caffeine bomb is where you will find good music. <laughs> Speaking of foreign language, you can listen to it anywhere in the world. You don't have to be within signal range. No, you can. Even if you're in Oceania. Even if you're in Oceania, where we still don't have a listener. As for me, I'm at TJ Breen. I'm also at Yukon Podcast occasionally. My Twitter account is now full of delightful photos of times gone by, including one of uh, Homer Babbage reading the Daily Campus. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.